Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, well, hello. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> I'm happy to introduce yet again. I think it's only been two episodes now, uh, three technically, uh, since I've had Chris Jobs Anderson's from uh, Eastern Border on this podcast. This is the fastest turnaround I've ever had with uh, with a guest, but I'm happy to be making this a joint episode. So people are going to be hearing this conversation that we're about to have on both feeds here. But a lot's been going on in Ukraine and regards to Ukraine. And honestly, we're going to be going in terms of like current events, we're going to be talking about something that kind of inspired me to try to have this conversation with you. Uh, It's kind of old news in terms of current events, but it kind of prompted some thinking on my end about uh, assassinations, both in history, but also in the present, because there seems to be a lot going on (laughs) these days. I just wanted to throw that out there first. But there's been some big news going on on your end. I mean, I've been listening to your show. I listened to the last couple. I started to listen to the episode you put out today, like I was saying earlier, and off mic. But yeah, I. it seems like there's a lot of good news coming from your neck of the woods. Well, good good for Ukraine, uh, but sure. quite bad if you think about the long run, because right. I believe that we're going to have a period of a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, my nose is a bit closed, because... Uh, dear listeners, uh, I just haven't properly slept. I've been working since I don't know how many days now in a row, barely sleeping. So <laughs> uh, it is what it is. Indeed. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, currently today, today was the first day when uh, a lot of pro-war people got really angry at Putin because during all of this fiasco with the Ukrainian counterattack, which is, you know, no one expected that that would happen, but it did. But then, on the same day as that happened, they had a festival in Moscow. The city festival, basically, for the nth anniversary of the city. Mm. And that happened on the same day when people are losing, people are dying. And yeah, a lot of people, you know, who have bought into Putin's propaganda, they truly believe that this is the end, that this is horrible, and that the evil Nazis are coming. And, and they also were looking at why did their side lose? And it turns out they have no equipment. They have a lot of issues and a lot of corruption. 
And then government says they don't have funding for their winter clothing, yet it shoots up 25,000 things for Moscow celebration. Wow. Oh, and, and then things went wild because the pain of the Girkins and all those, you know, Dugin's buddies, basically, yeah. they were in pain for, well... Losing. It turns out that uh, pure bravery is not enough on the battlefield. You also need some discipline and equipment. And then this happened, and today was like the first day ever when someone who wasn't on, as they would call it in the Russia, the liberal side, uh, actually criticized him. Ramzan Kadyrov, of all people, today criticized Putin. Remind me and uh, my listeners who don't know who that is. The Chechen, the mad dictator. Right. Oh, the, the, the mad lad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy who's... Probably one of the worst leaders in that neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. Or in general. In general, I mean, maybe. <laughs> you made a very good case for why he's not only just awful, but he's an idiot. Just l- a literal idiot. <laughs> so, yeah. No, no, no. That's, I'm not using that as a swear word. Right. That, that's literally describing him <laughs> the best way I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he came out against Putin on this then. Yeah, everyone thinks he did because there was a lot of Don and he yelled at the government and said things about Putin. But to be honest, I I would have to listen to that nine times to specifically understand. But the commentator said he went against Putin, yes. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I'm very curious, like, how this is going to shake out internally in Russia. You were talking about, uh, well, this was yesterday's episode, and maybe there is more information now, but it sounds like things are relatively quiet. We don't really know how this is affecting Russia internally, right? Like at least at the upper levels, right? No. Putin even decided to basically, he had a scheduled meeting about the situation of the war today with his generals, and he just canceled it. Whoa. And Putin himself has said nothing publicly. Interesting. Um, I just had a thought, and this is, you know, pure speculation, but, you know, this is how my brain works. It just goes into narrative mode, and I'm just thinking... Is he afraid to speak to his generals? Does he think that there's a likelihood that they might just turn on him, like, in a very meaningful way if he even sees them? Well, that is one of the theories about why everything went so smoothly by actual Ukrainian commentators, mind you. Right. That this actually could have been an actual setup as well. Sure. Oh, they were trying to set him up to have the meeting with him. No, no, set up the whole loss. Oh. Like everyone was wondering, well, sure, there's a lot of, like we spoke last time yes. about the corruption of the Russian army. Everyone knew it was corrupt, but no one, not even me, could imagine it was to such a level. I mean, maybe this whole level of corruption was done a bit intentionally to, to do this. I mean, who knows? At this point, any theories are valid because... Uh, I, I've spent past uh, 60 hours working on this matter, and... Uh, uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, is how I kind of rewind from my journalism work and podcasting. I, I come and make more podcasts. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to sort of like summarize everything that's been going on because it's it is nonstop. I mean, we we joke a lot and uh, complain a lot in the United States, at least, about the quote unquote twenty four hour news cycle. But I think when you're talking about an actual war, it is twenty four hours. I mean, something can change from one minute to the next. And I know it's an obvious statement, but I mean, I think a lot of people forget that, like. Yeah, our 24-hour news cycle that has nothing to do with war is kind of silly, but when you're in it, you know, like you are, you you have to be basically you have to defy sleep. It sounds like a lot of the time. I I, I have power naps about an hour long 
right. in the middle of the day, basically. Also, about the 24 hours news cycle, I was up and I just spotted moments when Americans started waking up. And at that point, when someone tweeted at me the Washington Post article about the Ukrainian achievements, that article was already old. The, it was like, yeah. yeah, they did this, but a couple of hours ago, now it's different. Well, yeah, and I was just seeing like, uh, I don't even know how I got to Newsweek, but I was looking at Newsweek and I was just seeing headlines and stories and I read a few of them and there was one that sounded more relevant to what you were talking about in terms of the victory that occurred. Uh, for example, there was a, a retired general from the United States, Ben Hodges. He was the commanding general of the US Army in Europe for a while. He was saying it was the 8th. So it was a couple days ago. It was like three days ago. He was saying Ukraine's going to retake Crimea within a year. Uh, and I was just thinking that just seems like it's you know something that would only be speculated if like a major victory had occurred. And the major victory, as far as I know, hadn't even occurred yet or it hadn't been made clear yet. And he was already saying that. And so I, it just feels like he was making a prognostication that just before more information came to kind of confirm that level of optimism, if you know what I mean. Look, I've I've also been telling everyone that I was certain that Ukraine would win. I didn't know the timescales, but I know that they would eventually win in some way or another. I thought they would uh, fight until stalemate and then uh, wait until sanctions kick in and then sign a deal or something. That was my idea of how Ukraine could win. Because by winning, I meant Ukraine's statehood, right? right. But, uh, but when this happened, yeah. Wow, it's it's crazy. There was an interesting thing that I forgot to mention, uh, a saying on, from one of the analysts on my podcast today. It was that, uh, well, if you build a society around lies, when all your guys in your cabinet lie to each other about their victories, achievements, everything, when everything is built about lies, why would you think that your army and your army's capabilities would be any different? Right. And also the fact that I think what hurt Putin the most was literally the fact that the guys on the ground can read read the news too <laughs> yeah because yeah. they they're fighting and sure we'll, we'll we'll get to their ideals for which they're fighting i, I know we're getting there right but, uh, but you're fighting for something and you're believing in it then you you're promised that if in case something bad happens to you your family will be taken care of and then turns out nope that's a yeah. lie as well and then you don't have equipment and that's a lie as well and like i said today on the show i really think that some of these people who were previously by putin's propaganda they're starting to awaken right now. I think this is their moment of awakening. And Putin today, Putin himself, uh, I don't know, I have this image of a shattered glass mask, which has like a single crack on. It is the first time when we might actually see the, the real Putin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does start to seem like uh, the more that we look at like, I really like how you put that, by the way, the uh, the like when you have a house of lies, we'll just call it that, but uh, everything is based on lies. A state is based on lies. Of course, the, you know, the military effort is just not going to live up. Uh, but on top of that, I mean, we kind of touched on this, I want to say, in the episode that uh, where I had you on, but I don't think I, I phrase it this way, that when you are the country that's invaded, you have far more incentive to win than the country that's invading. I think that's almost always the case throughout history. I mean, you're trying to preserve not just your way of life, but your life, whereas the invading army usually has some sort of, especially now in the 21st century, some sort of abstract ideological goal. And in sure. this specific case, if we're talking about lies, that is also based on a lie. Exactly. Because all yeah. is one, they keep telling me that there is no Ukraine, this is Russia, Ukrainians yeah. are a creation. 
I don't know. I've met quite a few of them. So <laughs> they, they they kind of exist as their own people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that shouldn't be a controversial thing to say. Sure, I'll I'll give it that that they're Slavic people. They're related to Russians, definitely. Right. But it's kind of like us and Lithuanians. We're both Baltic people, but we're also not the same. Right. Uh, and there's a lot. Of, I mean, I'm I'm sorry. Slavic is very broad. <laughs> like you could be talking about Bulgaria. You could be talking about the Balkans if you're saying Slavic. And I know that their Russia and Bulgaria have a history together. I mean, I think that if I remember right, Bulgaria is the most Russified uh, country in the Balkans. But regardless, it's like these are distinct entities, not all the same, just because they all sort of share a common heritage in that sense. They are less the same than the United States are. Far less. So Right. Right. Yeah. Or it, it's like... The United States, yes, we have a uh, heritage to Great Britain and at this point, a lot of other countries all over the world. But we do tend to kind of have a um, – and we talked about this when you had me on your show. The American identity is still pretty fixed in a lot of ways. We're all very similar despite being from very different backgrounds and there being very different values all over the country. I mean that's sort of that difference is what unites us in a lot of ways. I know that's cheesy. A lot of people don't want to hear that in America, but it is true. Whereas yeah. I think when you're talking about Slavic nations, they all have their own histories and they might have to do with Russia, but that doesn't define them is what I'm trying to say. Just a little tangent. I'm really happy that we're able to have such sure. conversations. I miss these. This is why I like coming on to your show and invite you on mine because it's just something sure. that really, again, like Dan Carlin said, those those discussions with cigarettes and everything, the smoky room. Or yeah. at one point, that, that, that mentioned that joke. But yeah, I, I agree with you. See, the thing is, I am at a loss here because yesterday even I was surprised and I have no idea what's going to happen next. Zero. You can't None. even like make I, a reasoned guess at this point, it sounds like. Uh, I am pretty sure that in the end, we will see Russia collapsing in mm -hmm. some way or another. But that's the big picture thing that could take a year or two after the whole thing ends. But... When I'll go to sleep after this, I have no clue to what I'll awaken in the news. I checked on some things, but I'm, which I'm pretty sure will not happen, but mm -hmm. uh, nuclear war is out of the picture. Don't worry about that. Right. Because, because the nuclear guys, they're smart fellas who are, let's just say, Putin might want to do a nuclear war. Those guys won't let him. Interesting. Okay. Because I was thinking like, again, it's where my brain goes, but there was this ominous cloud that have formed in my mind when you were talking on your, um, not this most recent episode, but the one from yesterday, about how things have just been kind of quiet. Or no, that was today. And I was just thinking that, um, so that was when you released today, and things are quiet after this defeat, after this disruption of the supply lines. And I was just thinking, is there like a quiet withdrawal of Russian troops going on because Putin's about to unleash nuclear Armageddon? Like, I mean, on Ukraine specifically? I mean, that's just, that was where my... That my worst case scenario mindset went. Ah, ah, but comrade, this is why he can't unleash nuclear holocaust because he's literally told everyone that they're actually just Russians, but fooled, brainwashed by the West. But they're ah. actually Russians, and it's all Russia. Mm -hmm. See, he's portraying yeah. this word in the sense that if he would launch nukes on Kiev, then all those pro-war guys who are already starting to doubt him and hate him, then at that point he would just get massacred. Mm. Oh, from the inside, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm blaming you for this, but I'm now just I, – I have not been looking at Putin when I think about uh, the ongoing war. I'm not thinking of him as a rational actor anymore. I mean you've pretty much convinced me and I hope a lot of other people that he is very clearly 
not a rational actor anymore. And when I think in those terms, I just think, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And that's what he's going to do. I think that's why my brain just went to, oh, he's pulling back troops so he can just say, you know, screw it. I'm going to nuke them at this point. One of the weirdest theories that I've heard is the fact that he actually tried to do that already, but was stopped. So that's why you don't hear anything about them. Okay. But we don't have any confirmation that this happened, but it's – We've been hearing about it, like theories, you you said. That's one of those uh, rumors that I've heard. I hear a lot of rumors. Uh, Some of them are actually more or less valid. Some of them are, well, bullocks, but (laughs) they exist. Sure. And it's always good, I think, to apply things like the law of parsimony, where you're just like, look, what's the simplest explanation for what's going on? And when you really think about it, especially if you believe as I do, that when you can attribute something to either malice or incompetence, it's almost always a better idea to assume incompetence. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't want to think about, like why bad things happen. Most of the time, it has to do with what we call human error. As you well know, I'm sure you studied this throughout history as well. And human error means incompetence. It means not assuming that certain scenarios are going to play out because you are just that deluded or stupid or just didn't think about it. One of our favorite, and this actually kind of like, you know, gives us a nice uh, transition here, but I'm sure you've heard all of the theories behind the assassination of John F. Kennedy here in the United States. It's one of our favorite conspiracy theory pastimes here. And honestly, yeah, I, mean, I love them. Oh, they're, they're fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I'm sorry, Oliver Stone's JFK movie, it's complete trash, but it is fun. I mean, the Warren Commission is a very, uh, very interesting story in and of itself. But there is a book out there, and I'm blanking on the name of it. I wish I didn't. I think it was called The Perfect Bullet or something like that. I'm blanking. I came out in 1992. And it is the most compelling theory that kind of paints over all of the inconsistencies in the mainstream narrative. And that's that a hungover, possibly still drunk, Secret Service agent – because all the Secret Service agents that were protecting Kennedy that day had been out partying until five in the morning, and they were on that parade at like eight or something like that. It was only a couple hours later. I know that. I don't remember the actual time frame. But when Oswald fired his first shot, that caused the car that the Kennedys were in and all the whole motorcade to lurch forward really quick. One of the Secret Service agents was sitting on the car with his rifle in hand, he wasn't being very careful. His finger was probably on the trigger. And when it lurched forward, he accidentally fired and it blew Kennedy's brains out. And then because of the Cold War sort of coloring everything, the United States Secret Service and the government covered it all up just because they're like, we can't let Khrushchev, we can't let him, we can't let you know the communist East know about this fuck up because it really was the most epic fuck up in American history, if it's true. I don't know if it's true, obviously, but I choose to believe that story because it is the ultimate expression of incompetence being the motive behind anything bad that happens. And look, we're all used to incompetence. I've noticed this fact when I interview people in every state department ever or any big business. Everyone complains about how in their you know, structural unit, Everyone is lazy, nothing gets done, you have to go through a ton of paperwork, right. and then you know there's useless meetings, you know, all, all sorts of regular stuff. Then they're kind of like, oh, I wish I was working in that other part, which seems to them is competent. Well, let me tell you the fact that uh, the tram arrives each morning, for me, that's <laughs> a small miracle, because, you know, incompetence knows no bounds. It's just a thing. It's, it's human nature. It's just, it's a given, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a constant. Yes, 
Yeah. I think I understand why a lot of people, I mean, this kind of gets into why people believe conspiracy theories. This is well-trod territory. People who look into conspiracy theories know this, but at the end of the day, the reason why people choose malice and not incompetence, we don't want to believe that our leaders, our governments, our states are fallible in the same way, you know, that schmuck down the street is, but they are because they're made up of people. You don't have to be an extraordinary person. I have spoken to a lot of politicians personally. Sure. And I've been to various meetings. And they're all in person are just normal people. You know what keeps this this mask on? The fact that there's this official protocol all the time. And underneath there are two types of people, stock up bastards and actually decent normal folks. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the stuck up bastards, I mean, I think that does tend to be overrepresented when it comes to power. I mean, that that's the part that um, I wouldn't use the word extraordinary, but or even unique. But I do think that that is a trait that a lot of people who seek power have is being stuck up of being narcissistic like they have to in a lot of ways. But I do think there are decent people who enter into places where they gain power. That is for sure. There's a lot of decent people out there. But unfortunately, at least in the United States, I mean, I can't speak for anywhere else, obviously, but in the United States, I feel like there's an overrepresentation more of the narcissist stuck up people. I think we reward that kind of trait, at least culturally in the United States. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, someone like, well, frankly, there's a reason why Donald Trump became president, I think, or I really think that that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, probably. I've noticed that the worst are, at least here, not even the elected officials, right. but uh, the state clerks that have worked in the service forever. Mm. Basically, those super high up clerks, they tend to be that. Not all of them, but that's that's where this is the most common thing. It is interesting. And like I said, I was trying to awkwardly segue us into talking about you know assassination in a sense, because there has been a rash of them. The thing that prompted us to, you know, put this together is something that's now i think two weeks old three weeks old is regardless is our uh, our mutual buddy alexander dugan his daughter tragically because it's always tragic was blown up in a car are there still questions i mean what where are we with that investigation maybe we should uh jump back and tell this you can tell the story of what happened and then you can just sort of fill me in on where we are now with like what we know and what we don't know Okay, so what happened was that she used to work as a high manager, high-level manager, one of the organizers in Prigozhin's troll farm. Daria Dugina is her name. I should m- mention that. Yes, We call her Dasha. It's, it's, Dasha is the shortened okay. version of it. She was actually very well known for her public statements in more mainstream Russian media public. Well, she was virtually unknown outside of outside of Russia. Meanwhile, yeah. I, I spoke about how much Dugin actually is, wasn't that well known previously elsewhere. Yeah. And then they went together on a festival of traditional values. Yeah, you it was know, a traditionalist uh, festival. Yeah, like capital T traditionalist is his, basically his ideology. Yeah. Yeah. And coming back from that, they were supposed to go in Daria's car, Dugin for still unknown reasons mm-hmm. decided to we'll switch to cars at the last moment. Yeah. And then boom, then she blew up. And then the weirdness started because we have a organization that's taken the blame, which I don't believe exists. <laughs> then we have the official Russian version of this lady and her 12-year-old kid that moved to Estonia and, and followed the Daria around in her Mini Cooper. Also a guy staring at you with a pirate hat from his bushes was also involved. 
uh, <laughs> the official version makes no sense. No. And, and uh, well, I mean, the, I remember when that because we did get that news about the the woman. The she's Romanian. Am I getting that right? Uh, yes, Romanian hired by the Ukrainian special service. Yes, yes, yeah. Who's now hiding in Estonia? And she brings her twelve year old daughter along while blowing up or trying to blow up Alexander Dugin. I'm sure she wouldn't have minded if she was part of this killing, you know, Dasha as well. But I'm sorry, the twelve year old kid in tow just strikes me as a very weird thing. Like that's one of those things where, like, if it's true, it would be one of the weirdest assassination stories in human history. Makes no sense. I'm pretty much sure that she was sent there to do something. Sure. She wasn't just a random person. But I highly doubt it was in any way informed related to the assassination. I mentioned my theories because, again, this ties into this whole attitude towards Dugin's followers not being very well loved today, especially mm-hmm. today in Russia. And they, they're not you know that fond of Putin as well. I thought personally that this could be a warning shot for Dugan or some sort of publicity stunt maybe gone wrong. But yeah, like you said, I also explained this with a ton of incompetence. Whatever yeah. this was, I believe that this was FSB fucking everything up. No matter mm. what they wanted to do, I know that this this wasn't how it was supposed to end. If it was a publicity stunt, they, you know, they probably planted something in a car, but just like with Ryazan Sugar in the 90s, uh, just happened to be a real bomb. Yeah. If they actually wanted to hit Dugin, then they fucked it up because, yeah, Dugin escaped. Now we can't do any. I mean, I don't know the reasons why. I don't know the original targets, but this just smells of, of it, KGB it, incompetence here. Right. Because this, this reminds me of those two nice guys who went to see the Salisbury Spire. It's 123 meters high, you know? Yeah. Well, it's so funny because... Uh, when it initially came out, we didn't know anything. All we had was that, at least in the West, all we had was the videos on Twitter of Dugan holding his head in his hands. I mean, it. and first of all, it does look pretty sincere on his part. Like, he does look pretty horrified at what happened. Um, because I do want to be careful. I don't want to start making insinuations, but I'm sorry. The, the fact that he changed cars at the last minute is very strange. It's very yeah. strange. And that he, like, maybe it's a coincidence. In fact, I... I always bet on it being a coincidence, but the fact is he changed cars at the last minute, which is usually something that someone does who knows that they are a target, and yet he doesn't do anything to stop his daughter from taking the same car. That's a very strange thing to do, but I still do think that initially – we could tell right away. I mean, there was already kind of some discourse going on. You might remember some of it because it was on Twitter and, you know, we were interacting together on this, but it just reeked of intelligence services. Now, initially it was like, okay, well, it could have very well been CIA related. I mean, they've done stuff like that plenty of times in the past, but the more information that came out and the weird, the more weirdness we started to sort of like understand about this whole story, it just struck me as like a sort of, frankly, a an FSB fuck up. That's really what it started to seem like to me. That is, surprisingly enough, my most believable theory. Right. I just can't bring myself to think that Dugan is that much of a bastard that he knowingly allowed his daughter to take a risk he wouldn't take himself. But, you know, he is, as we discussed in our last long form discussion he he's he's what did you call him he's the uh he's the clown up in the corner of this of the ceiling he's just that strange he's a strange guy so i don't know i mean he really does seem like a true believing type so 
never put anything past a true believer, I guess. But his daughter was like with him. Mm -hmm. She was, she was very influential. She was, I also checked because of her job, she was much more valuable to Dugan alive as well. Even even if we approach it from the super cynical angle. Sure. Still. It would have been a bizarre choice to try to martyr her. Like, and because again, as you put it, and I think this is something that a lot of Westerners, um, both fans and detractors of Dugan alike don't understand or appreciate is his influence isn't really that big in Russia compared to his influence here. He's developed and continues to develop quite a following, um, particularly on the uh, the American right. So, and it's not just because of Bannon; it's just because he he speaks English and he puts out a lot of content that people here can consume very easily. He does lots of interviews, so I think people overestimate his importance, despite the fact that he does remain. I know you share this opinion with me that he remains a very significant figure in terms of like Russian politics in a sense. He's, oh, he's yeah, influential. Yeah. Yes, of course. Uh, everyone basically from Maxim Kalashnikov to the Girkin himself to others, uh, they've all read Dugan. Yeah. All comment on him. And so. Right. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this to you and uh, you hadn't heard this, but yeah, they, they do assign his reading or at least they used to in officer training. So it was, I believe in, um, specifically to moscow i'm not sure I'm yeah, yeah yeah i checked that one out sorry i don't really follow through all the recommended reads of, of the moscow officer schools <laughs> i only know some okay <laughs> <laughs> it was just like when that story broke though about his daughter being car bombed and likely it being meant for him it did get me like paying more attention to russia because russia does have as you pointed out in a, in a message to me, I mean, Russia specifically, but just, you know, the Eastern border in general does have uh, quite a history of assassination. There does seem to be some other things that are going on. Frankly, I know I don't know, but I'm just going to say the quote unquote suicide of Reveal Maganov. I'm sorry. He fell from a hospital window. Like, oh, look, look, comrade, 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 <laughs> falling from window, proud uh, tradition. Also, also, who goes to a fucking hospital to commit suicide? Exactly. Like, I'm sorry. When I read that headline, uh, before I even started looking into the stories, I was just like, oh, yeah, he fell into some bullets, too. And maybe a couple knives. Like, of course, he didn't jump out of a hospital window. Now, I always like, I mean, I'm one of those people who believes that uh, coerced suicide is a thing, but at that point it's assassination. And the interesting thing, and I think this was actually Newsweek as well, uh, but it might have been a different publication. But someone pointed out, and it was a great headline: uh, Maganov was the eighth Russian oil czar to mysteriously die in like the oh, last yeah. year. So I wanted you to explain this and fill me in on this oh. this seeming uh, allergy to life that Russian oil barons have these days. <laughs> Ah, you see, they just like money. Okay. You know, and, and, and they have families and kids in the West and everything. They're also somewhat sane people, you know, with, with families who want to visit them sometimes again. And they have Western partners with whom they work. So sometimes they say things they shouldn't have said right. publicly. Okay. This is a very old tradition. I mean, in Latvia, the most famous case of uh, being uh, defenestrated. I love that. I like to use the word defenestration in a serious manner. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, but but we had we had a poet a young one uh 19 years old super talented kid in the soviet era who also got thrown out of a window yeah by by the kgb so but this just shows that if kgb wants to kill someone they do it this blatantly they don't go around like i don't know cia or or stasi or mi6 with with poison needles or or secret gadget no they they'll just walk up to you and bash you in with a hammer when they try to do complicated stuff then you know 
they get found out. I mean, the more complicated it gets, the more things can go wrong. You know, I mean, I understand the logic. It's perverse, but I get it. And I just, I, yeah, like I just listened to, uh, I think it was a four part series that those guys that Carlin, Dan Carlin recently had on his addendum show, but they had him, uh, the rest is history guys. I can't recommend their podcast enough. It's a very good show. Surprise. I didn't even know about it until Carlin was talking about, cause I, I'm a big fan of one of the hosts, uh, Tom Holland, whose book on Christianity dominion is just a must read for anybody interested in that. But, uh, they did a four part series on the fall of the Soviet union, then the rise of Yeltsin and then the rise of Putin to, that sort of gives a really nice sort of overall about two hour summary of how we got to where we are, how rather the Russians got to where they are. And the impression I got from what they were talking about is that Putin and the oil guys, the, arist- the aristocrats, the uh, – what is the term? Just the, the rich guys in, in uh, Russia. The oligarchs. The oligarchs. That's the word. Thank you. Uh, they weren't always very fond of each other. I don't even know if they became fond of each other. I mean, c- could you like fill me in on that? Well, see, everyone knows about Gazprom and Rosneft and the big companies, but there were smaller ones as well. You know, in a lot of these cases, these oil companies, they were, how did they end up with this oil? This comes into privatization. Right. Back in the 90s, just like in all other days, when anything gets privatized, that is turned from a national property to a public one, the government basically calculated altogether all the value of all the properties you wanted to, you know, share out to people and gave each one a kind of a, a voucher, basically. At that time, those vouchers were selling on the market for one-tenth their face value because people were starving and stuff. So Mm -hmm. a lot of abuse happened there. But people who were in the know, well, uh, yeah, they could go and with these vouchers just get stuff. So for the most part, they all come from the organized crime scene, definitely all of them. Mm -hmm. All of them, and and they, they had achieved through tenders. Every last one of those old oligarchs is, is, has some connections to organized crime. Otherwise, he wouldn't have survived the 90s because the other guy with ties to organized crime would have shot him. So, yeah, I mean, the cleanest of them all is Khodorkovsky, who's who sat 10 years in prison because Putin <laughs> put him there. Putin put him in prison? Okay, so it is safe to say then that there already was some tension between the oligarchs and Putin, namely the the oil guys. But I, you pointed out, though, that they pretty much made it clear through things they said, especially vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine, that they were not um, team players, to put it bluntly. In terms, like they weren't like as loyal to Putin as he would have liked. Now, I got to ask, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I just assume, again, all eight of them, who've died under mysterious circumstances, they were murdered. I mean, I don't even know the stories of each one, but I am just sure that that is not, a, that can't be a coincidence after it's eight. Pretty sure one or two killed themselves without okay. being poked to do it, but, you know, just to save time for the nice men from the KGB, basically. Oh, so they knew that there was, you know, they, they had a target on their heads at that point. Such people always know. Sure. Well, yeah, and as you pointed out, you know, when you come from organized crime, you know that, if you don't seize the power, someone else is going to take it from you, that kind of mentality. And But do you think that Putin specifically was behind these things, or was this the FSB just sort of taking the initiative? Let me remind you what I said last time. Okay. Collective Putin. Collective the, Putin? Yeah, the Putin is a collective, is an embodiment of power. I see. Thing. I see. Okay. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border 
Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When a country, especially a really powerful one like Russia, sees so much assassination within it, it reeks of weakness, of like internal weakness, instability. I remember after, well, especially after the assassination of Dasha Dugina, but also these Russian oil oligarchs, I was just like thinking to myself, Chris Jobs is right. Like this is a nation not long for this world. I mean, because usually you start to see things falling apart through things like assassination. Now, sometimes you can walk back from that, but you know, you made enough of a case to me that that's not the case with Russia. They they really only have one way out of this, and that's to essentially not be Russia, recognizably at least, anymore. 
again, this is the same thing uh, that I told you about all this structure based on lies and everything. Yeah. This, this is the same situation there because the Kremlin's towers have been fighting amongst each other all the time, even during Soviet era. The KGB played their games versus the party versus the army, all those power structures. They, they always were fighting in, in the real sense. And now it's moved to more Western-oriented wing, Western in the sense that they would like to visit the EU and enjoy the benefits of all the good stuff right. that is. And then there's the more radical wing. It's it's all like that. And Putin was, well, the central fragment of everything, so to speak. But I think the shattering is, is what's going to happen here mm-hmm. because I do not know what he could possibly do because Putin is super averse of admitting that he's been wrong about something. Right. He's never actually really fired anyone who's fucked up on the job. They've always been moved to... Sometimes they get moved to be ambassadors to Maldives, for example, or something yeah. like that. You know, Somewhere that's nice, but out of way. Well, so. it's sort of like the old, you know, czarist way of exiling people, in a way. I don't... I mean, there's just no gulags anymore, at least not in the sense that they existed back then. So, yeah, that makes sense. I think back on like your um your technically still ongoing one day we'll get more of them a Man of Steel series about Stalin. I mean, this seems to just be sort of a post-Czarist tradition of just gamesmanship going on behind the scenes and and corruption. It just seems like that's just been a feature of Russia for over a hundred years now. I mean, am I am I off in that? No, that is that is a feature because. Again, the Russian elites, because I'm preparing, I have a lot of Kaufman episodes, but in Russian elites, traditionally, you know, it's always been considered faux pas and bad taste to be Russian. Because you see, uh, rich Americans, they they still, you know, uh, they will openly, proudly wear American-made stuff, right? Of course. Well, Russian guys will not. They won't wear wear, uh, Russian-made stuff or American-made stuff? Yeah. Russian made stuff. I see, I see. Because that comes from the old days of the serfs when, you know, serfs live out there in the village and they do their jobs with their pomishik, which is their manager. The big owner, important guy lives in Moscow. He doesn't even have to stare at them. Why would he? Yeah, yeah. I do wonder if maybe like this feature that we're talking about is sort of an inevitability, uh, at least in the, well, it's, it's short term, long term. It's hard to really delineate between the two, but it maybe as just a feature of post serfdom cultures. Uh, Europe hasn't been a serfdom like a proper serfdom for hundreds of years, whereas Russia was a serfdom only what 150 years ago. It wasn't that long uh, ago? I was in Russia back then. Well, my country was. Yeah, so it was 1848 for us, 1868 for others. Right, and you were all subjugated as serfs, basically, right? Depending on, there were, of course, some free people. Serfs were a special class of people. Sure, it wasn't sure, the race sure. of people. It was basically all the farmers and everything. But yeah, serfs were like more industrialized slavery in a way. You can only control a whole village. But then again, you know, you don't go out there and rape them personally. You tell your manager to pick up some pretty ladies to bring to you. And then you kind of let them go by. It is, it is served. It's slavery with extra steps, basically. Exactly. But, yeah. America has experimented with uh, feudalism before. People aren't really as aware of that as they so, should be. So I mean, look, obviously, I'm just explaining this. Because sure, sure. Served, they all spoke Russian or their own native languages. But up until the very collapse of the Russian Empire, everyone in the higher society spoke only French in public. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that kind of tracks with um, 
the sort of Baltic German nobility as well, even though they weren't, those were ethnic Germans though, right? The Baltic German nobility. Yeah. And this is what I find super funny in there. In modern day, Russia's extra super, yeah, we're number one association because this is something that they're channeling that truly was never there before. Right. The noble classes treated your average Russian like like a piece of property. And right. that's the thing. It's it's uh, It wasn't the other from some other part of the world that was dragged there. No, it was... You could basically born next door to him. This otherness was inferred to this whole situation. It was just weird. Yeah, well, it's sort of like... um. In internal slavery in a way. I mean, because America obviously had a had a slave an international slave trade. Um, but like you said, in Russia, at least in the empire, they didn't do that. They just they yeah. just used their own subjects in that sense. No one would have ever thought of thinking even about it's only later on, very late, when when some people start doing something in Russian and they're looked at total weirdos. Like uh this is why Russian literature starts so late. This is why, for example, Lomonosov, one of the most brilliant Russian scientists, was stared at as a complete freak and a weird weirdo because he decided to write his papers in actual Russian, which which was a big no-no back then. And that's so funny that he was looked at as a weirdo in that sense. I mean, I feel like that's something I can't say, but it just that sounds like very familiar to me that I know what I'm thinking of. Uh, it kind of reminds me of how, I mean, granted, it was more of a system in place rather than like a social more, but it's sort of like how Christianity didn't exist outside of Latin for a very long time. And then, you know, Martin Luther comes along and says, hey, why don't we write this in like every day, well, in his case, German, that people can understand. And I'm just wondering, maybe maybe that tracks, I'm not sure uh, with what you're saying, but I'm wondering if that, if what we're talking about here is just Russia going through a normal developmental stage in uh in terms of like a society you know what i mean maybe maybe not i really wish they would get a actual proper you know like real democracy for once right maybe that would be nice yeah it's one of those things where i could see that happening more than i could see it happening in china for example i don't i mean we talked about this i don't think china is capable of becoming a democracy just culturally speaking they just don't have that as a social value, but there does seem to be, uh, you know, at least in some cases, I would imagine there's a, there's a thirst for democratic ideals within Russia. I mean, maybe not in the majority. I don't know. I mean, what actually, what would you, what would you say? Is there, is there much of a cultural social thirst for something like democratic values? You're literally digging through all the episodes that I really want to make. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, now we're talking about the Russian liberals and they're their right. own beast because those are the people who, just like the elites of the olden days, had always stared down at their compatriots. They tend to be the arrogant types. Let's just say that. Sure. There's a reason why, why no one really likes them in Russia, including other liberals, by the way. Mm -hmm. They have managed through their arrogance and through their weird attitude towards everything, even the West and everything, they've managed to basically alienate even me at this point. Some of them just act quite oblivious uh, about other people's lives. And if you disagree with them, then you're instantly a super dumb person. Yeah. And uh, this, this might sound like a smug American to you, but this is a bit worse even. I, mean, I was going to say, this is really reminding me of 
I mean, what I would in, in the American context, what I would say is wrong with American progressives is exactly what you're describing there. Russian liberals used most of them went to, to colleges abroad, right? Right. So they use this liberalism to basically show off their good education abroad and show how better they are than anyone else. I was going to say, believe it or not, I don't think people, typical people don't respond well to being talked down to like that. <laughs> Oh, you don't say. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> I think that, I mean, I, what you're describing feels very universal to me. People, at least, maybe it's a Western thing, I mean, uh, or a European thing, but I think it's universal that, like, being talked down to from an upper class person. It's one of those things that just makes me think of the French Revolution, and I'm just thinking, you know, you guys kind of had that coming. <laughs> I mean, I know that it's overplayed, but let them eat cake is a great metaphor for what we're talking about here. And that's that it's out of touch bourgeois uh, le- people who legal disclaimer, sure. please do not offend Marie Antoinette. She actually never said that. Exactly. Yeah. I, I knew it's, it's a cliche because it's overplayed and not even true. <laughs> so yeah, it's, um, but yeah, like the, that attitude is a very damaging one. And I would actually argue that that makes it even less likely. And maybe this is what you're saying. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but that makes it even less likely that someone would even, entertain the idea of being democratic if that's the baggage that comes along with it it's definitely kept me from i mean that's like the one of the main reasons i'll never identify as a progressive in america because it's like i just can't get over the gall that someone would have to tell me what it means to be a good and righteous person i mean there's a lot of baggage there in general that's personal obviously but i think that that's just bad politics yeah Definitely. Yeah. Because this is the same thing as with, with slacktivism these days. Yes. Some tragedy happens somewhere on the other side of the planet, and those are the guys who are the first to put on their Facebook. Yeah. The, the people who you know put up Ukrainian flags in their profile photo, but they have no connection to Ukraine or the conflict in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and they don't do anything about it either. They don't even follow the news. They just do it to show solidarity, and they think that's enough. Well, yeah. if you want to do something, then – well do maybe but this this also makes the people actually do stuff right yeah it makes it makes them look bad right you know it taints the image it like basically makes like because what we're talking about here like the slacktivists they're virtue signaling they're virtue signaling frankly oh that's the word yeah the, the 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 virtue signaling of just putting up a ukrainian flag in your profile like what that does is it gives ammo to the cynics and you know i'll cop to it i'm a cynic i mean i'm very cynical about this sort of thing but it, I agree with you that when enough people just start doing that and nothing else, it kind of makes anyone who does want to do something and then does do something, donates, for example, uh, to uh, a cause that helps uh, you, the Ukrainian people, the refugees, like it just makes them look like a virtue signaler as well. I mean, the only answer yeah. to that is just don't pay attention to what people on the internet are doing, of course. Like just if you want to donate, do donate. Do it, but just don't talk about it. Just do it and be glad that you're helping. Um, but you know or that's if, not if, how social media works anymore. But if you wanna, if you wanna be a social signaler that actually does some useful things, okay, donate to Nafo, get a nice little fell avatar. Yeah, that's good. And and you you will also be very useful in the sense that well, we do need people that go out there and troll Russians because the pro-Russian folks they're they're often stuck in a bubble, and then if there are no negative comments on their posts, then, you know, a lot of people might think they may be true or something. They might, you know, respond to your criticism or your, uh, your, you know, derision with like, you know, their own derision and 
you know, criticism, but you know, it, it does, like you said, lets them know that they are not in a bubble that they don't, they can't just like say what they want without any pushback. I mean, I understand the logic there for sure. The thing though, that like to jump back to this um, yeah. theme of internal assassination uh, or, or the internal uh, meaning of assassination, rather, it does kind of feel weird though, when you see something like what happened to prime minister Abe or former prime minister Abe over in Japan, but because that was a very strange outlier. As far as I know, Japan does not have internal problems like the way Russia does, obviously. But interesting that we see so much assassination in Russia, but we're also seeing it and the attempts of it here in America, but also in Japan. I mean, the funny thing is when I was looking into the Abe assassination just to get some sense of what it was, it gave me a sort of crash course in Japanese politics, which I realized I know nothing about, but the faction he represented, it means he, to be clear, an assassination is a tragedy. Death is a tragedy on a human level. But when it comes down to the beliefs held by those who we've been talking about, specifically uh, Dasha Dugina and Prime Minister Abe, I'm not particularly sad about them not being around anymore because they believe some pretty heinous stuff and said some pretty heinous stuff. I mean, Dugina was just like her father. She was saying a lot of crazy shit and she was very, as I understand it, pretty genocidal in her language about Ukrainians. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's not much of a loss in that sense. It's a human loss, but beyond that, it's not much of a loss. And Abe, I mean, I'm a little biased because of, you know, my family, but, uh, you know, he was even worse. He was somebody on Japan's hard right. I mean, it, that's what they would call their right wing. And their right wing are essentially the Japanese equivalent of Holocaust deniers because they deny that anything happened in Nanking under the Japanese army. They minimize it or flat out deny it. And I'm sorry, when you start denying the rape in Nanking where hundreds of thousands of people died in some of the worst, most heinous ways imaginable at the hands of Japanese soldiers, I'm not really going to shed a tear when you know someone makes a homemade gun and shoots you as what happened to Abe. And the funny thing is actually the guy who killed Abe Nothing to do with politics. It was just because of a an association that he had with this um, – it was like a Christian organization or something. Some other group unrelated completely? It was, yeah, a completely unrelated group that had screwed over his mother and she'd lost her house. So it's like a – I understand why he was angry, but it was completely unrelated to Abe's politics in a direct sense. But the thing is – I mean, I was talking to you about this. I was drawing comparisons to the late 19th century and what, what that we call the age of assassination, where a lot of people were getting killed. And it was never always about politics. It was, it was always for varied reasons. But there was just an increase in the amount of assassinations that were occurring. And it does kind of start to feel like we're entering a new, a second age of assassination, sort of similar to... Uh, I think it was called the Age of Steel in Italy in the lead up to fascism. My friend Daniele Bolelli was telling me about that semi-recently oh. when I was floating this theory past him. Because like in America, at this point, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't follow anything in America. We had an aborted assassination attempt on one of our Supreme Court justices after uh, the ruling that protected abortion was overturned. He almost killed oh. Justice Kavanaugh, but then he decided to give up at the last second. As far as I'm concerned, that's still an assassination attempt. So- there's something going on on a much larger scale, I think, possibly. I could be overstating it, but that's just the sense I'm getting, and it kind of freaks me out a little bit. This is what I meant when yeah. I was saying in our our well, exchanges, it, it, like, this is going to be a pretty does. depressing episode. <laughs> this this is pretty grim, you know? Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, about Justice Kavanaugh, for example? Yeah. Yeah. 
America is more known, and I, I don't need to tell you this because I think the rest of the world kind of looks at us in a sort of like, you guys are crazy. We're more known for mass shootings than assassinations. And we've had several, obviously, and many have been politically motivated. But I think that we could probably fold mass shootings into the assassination category. And regardless, I I only see this kind of thing outside of Russia, because I think it's going to keep happening in Russia probably for a while. That's just par for the course with the shattering you're describing. I think that that's just sort of inevitable, but it does feel like it's part of a larger trend. Angry guys with guns? Well, look, in the 90s, just after the Chechen war, that's where the whole Russia's criminality started. Right. Well, now it's going to be a rerun of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with maybe a little bit of warlordism thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, it's just, that comes with it. It comes with the territory. I mean, the thing is, though, this is the part where I really am going to make people depressed or think that I'm completely overstating things. But we need to remember what the age of assassination led to and combine that with the fact that an assassination or that assassinations show an internal weakness and insecurity and instability within States That was all par for the course with all the assassinations that were occurring back in the 19th century. And what did those all kind of culminate in? The final assassination of that age being that of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand by Gavriel Princip. And it, it's hard for me to walk back from the ledge <laughs> to think that, okay, we're, we're in for that all over again. <laughs> and all the instability within these nations is going to turn into a lot of bloody revolutions and coups. I don't think it's going to go that far. I hope not. <laughs> but I, I have to agree with you here. We are certainly looking at, a, at an era of, well, bit more chaos than usual. Yeah. And just because it seems confined to, for example, Russia doesn't mean it is. It doesn't take oh, much no. for it to become you know, for it to break out. I think Western special services shall have to take a great look at, uh, for example, Russian Russian terrorists after this whole event. Do you think neo-Nazis like uh, Rusic Squadron or Wagner Group, you know, they're, they're tough guys. It's hard to kill them all. Sure. And they won't be re-educated and they will want some vengeance and they won't have anything else to lose. Yeah, I mean, if they, you know, if, if their cause has been, you know, diminished by grander forces, yeah, at that point, it's going to incentivize them to keep doing what they're doing or go further rather. Yeah. <laughs> and as you pointed out earlier, and as you've been pointing out, it does look like the tide is turning more into Ukraine's favor in a more obvious way. So this could happen, well, sort of like how Ukraine's victory seems to be sooner rather than later. These these backlashes, to put it mildly, are going to be coming sooner rather than later. And that is very worrisome. Yeah, but you kind of have to accept this. I mean, from starters, like, Gorbachev died. Then Queen Lizzie died. Yeah. And I'm starting to thinking that I guess it's some sort of... We're just seeing the last gasp of a, of a dying era at this point. Right? Yeah. Literally. Yeah. What we call the boomer era in America. Yeah. We kind of have to basically endure through this and make sure the next one isn't as well, terrible as this one. This one's ending was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It. And This is a... This is sort of a broad statement or question, but are all eras, especially significant eras like the one we're seeing the end of now, do they tend to end in your eyes, historically speaking? Do they tend to end violently or chaotically? Sometimes they just end up with a whimper. Right. Then again, we have we are already seeing chaos. You're, for, you're forgetting oh, yeah. about Sri Lanka, for example, also, which exists, which I also follow that whole collapsed thing. 
Yeah. Oh, Sri Lanka. Yeah, of course. Yeah. There are, I believe that there are definitely some global systems such as United Nations and, and, and some other things that are global that maybe should, you know, require another look at because this world that we live in right now can no longer be guided by principles created just after World War II. Yes. I'm sorry, that era ended. Yes. And understandably, at least in the United States, there's a lot of nostalgia for that post-World War II era. Like That sort of transcends politics as we know it, at least in the United States, is that in general, regardless of what side, quote unquote, you're on, you have a lot of people who are pining for that greatness, that sense of optimism. And you hear it a lot from the American right, but I think there's a lot of nostalgia and optimism surrounding the sort of beginning of the downfall of that optimism of the 1960s on the left. And I think that generally the problem is, as you put it, we need to leave that all behind. You know, we're we're 60 years on from the 1960s. We're going on 100 years, almost 80 years from the end of World War II. Like these are things that just don't really apply anymore. And it's not just because of technology. I think that there's a lot deeper changes going on, especially on a global scale, not just in America. So I'll let you respond to that. We're not the same people as we used to be. We're not our parents. The world's changed right. drastically even. And uh, just because some power won some war way back, what does this have to do with us today? Right. What you're getting at, this is so interesting to me, that sort of is why I go so hard in the paint when someone starts talking about Nazis. And I just say, there's no such thing as Nazis anymore. Like even the people who identify as neo-Nazis, they're not Nazis. All of the Nazis are dead. We either killed them or they've all died of old age, ones who survived. The most interesting part is that uh, people in the West who call themselves Bolsheviks or tankies, those people would be shot by Lenin. Exactly. First hand, instantly. Yeah. Our our lives have changed since even like 2007, since a smartphone appeared. Think about what that one thing has done to our lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's a great point. 15 years ago... Like, I mean, I didn't get an iPhone until 2012, and it's still like insanely different of an experience now with the iPhone. Uh, I think I have an iPhone 10. It's a completely different device and, and has completely different functionality. And that's changed how I behave like in the I'm, world by having it. It's yeah. my only portable device now. I used to have an iPod like an iPod Nano and an iPhone. I used to download songs. I don't download songs anymore. I just stream stuff now. Remember how we used to use Winamp? Oh yeah. And we had like and we had like folders of songs on our computers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because we're talking about something that just doesn't matter really on the face, but what what I think we're describing is behavior has changed. And when yes, behavior changes, the thing. psychology changes, and when the psychology changes, people at scale start to change. We still use a floppy disk as an icon yeah. to save documents. <laughs> little, little kids, little kids don't know what that is. Little kids don't know why why Skype has this weird weird logo kind of tube thing, right? They yeah. don't they don't recognize that. Yeah, I found an old uh, floppy disk, an A drive disk. I mean, if you really want to talk about old, you know, try to dig out a B drive disk, the ones that are actually floppy. <laughs> but oh man, yeah, those are. I mean, yeah, those are ancient. But I mean, I I saw them and I used them, but they were even before my time. They're from like the eighties. But yeah, like I found an old A drive disk and I showed. 
my partner Molly, her uh, her brother is nineteen. I showed it to him, and I was like, because like he's you know he's tech savvy, but he'd never seen a floppy disk before. <laughs> so I was just like, you know how much space is on this thing? One point six megabytes. <laughs> like it's useless at this point. Um, oh, we change everything about literally everything. But uh, we still, we have decided that for unknown reasons in the security council that runs our world, only these countries are allowed. This is like one of those things where I just, I love saying this, but mostly it's because it sounds so bad out of context, but it's the one thing Dugan always said that I was kind of like, you know, he's not wrong. The idea of a multipolar world. I mean, I don't think his premise is necessarily correct that it's a unipolar world. I think we very clearly have a lot of major powers. Like you said, the Security Council is pretty limited in scope. But, you know, a multipolar world is not necessarily a bad thing because it does give voice to, you know, places that haven't gotten their, you know, their due. I would like to go in further a bit. When I say multipolar, I don't mean states. I mean people. Right. You don't really need a state these days. You need it for sentimental reasons and, and to not get shot. And you basically states these days are like on like on a shopping list. You, your ethnicity and state is already mixed up in the West completely. Oh yeah. It doesn't matter. Secondly, so that's not important anymore. So your state basically becomes the place, you don't even have to like its culture. There are many cultures everywhere now. Maybe there's like more tendencies to one direction or the other direction or something. But basically, state is just like a guide to like, oh, I like these rules, but I don't like those rules. I'll go live there or something. It's, sure. Eh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to defamiliarize it. I mean, in a, in a sense that like, you know, when you do that, I agree with you that ideally, at least, we're, we're being pretty idealistic here, but I agree with you that it's, you know, it doesn't make much sense to be... For example, this is a loaded term, especially in the West, but to be a nationalist. In Latvia, Latvian, in Latvian language, nationalism is only the bad kind and patriotism is only the, the good kind. Right. Yeah. And I think that we do see a push for a more nationalist character. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, but it's usually a right wing concept uh, or um, a priority, I should say, in, in the West. I mean, we have one of our uh, Congress people. She was calling herself a Christian nationalist and it caused a lot of people's heads to explode over here. And that's when they started throwing out the term. If you didn't think she was a Nazi before, look at this. And that's when I just have to be the pedantic dork and just be like, okay, first of all, the Nazis weren't Christian. (laughs) Second of all, she's not a Nazi, even though she said some pretty weird things about Jews before. It's just, it's just such a, I mean, it's pedantic on my part, but it's just one of those things where I'm just like, we are so stuck. We're so rooted in that 20th century nostalgia with everything we talk about. It's just whether it's good or bad. That's actually the other thing I didn't really highlight enough is that when we try to describe why someone's views are bad, we just invoke the Nazis or we invoke the communists. And that just strikes me as so insufficient, even when the people are calling themselves communists or Nazis. It's just not relevant anymore. Yeah, because what was Nazi back then, even the meaning of the word itself has changed these right. days, the, the literal definition of it. Because back then, they literally thought of themselves as national socialists. Yeah. Yeah. Like pro-working class nationalists. Yeah. 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 Which is why they worked with Stalin for a while. Right. Quite easily. Yeah. 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 And I still think it's really funny, though, because Hitler was so on the nose about how much he didn't like the communists and how much he didn't like Russia. But, you know, at the obviously Stalin was just like, well, it uh, it is convenient. I will uh, team up with him. Nazism has never been a coherent ideology. No. 
I mean, I've tried to make it coherent on my show, but the more you do that, the more you realize how just all over the place it is as an ideology. You can call it right wing, I guess, but like even that isn't sufficient. It's it's so esoteric. It literally is esoteric. It's a it's a a weird like sort of religion that's built around a cult of personality. It's such a strange strange ideology, and I see that's why people I think that's why people are so invested in invoking it is that it is otherworldly and the crimes it's associated with are ghastly. So it's a very effective cudgel to use against people, but it's just I think it's 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 its own isolated thing. Yeah, yeah. I have to agree with you there. This is the point where I, I presume why most people kind of switch off your show sometimes. So you have to get really deep to understand this. This is political philosophy, dear right. listeners. And sometimes you have to have some. Because otherwise, making making sense of everything that's going around us is, is weird. And my own elections are coming on, on like 1st of October. And okay. we have the most bizarre candidates this year as well. Because we have like a lot of parties. A lot of them and out of... Because each year in our parliament, about eight or nine parties actually make it to the our Congress. Basically. I'm envious. <laughs> we only have our shitty two. <laughs> oh, we have t- we have tiered voting as well. Oh, rank choice, you mean? Yeah. Oh man, that's another one of those things that like it, it has passed in some states, including my home state of Minnesota, but it's not a national thing. And that'd be really nice if it was because it's so much better. <laughs> But but the weirdos that that are like running for Canada, you always complain in America that you've done something wrong with democracy about your only two parties and something. Well, over here we have a different thing. Our parties aren't like your Republicans or Democrats, which I have to actually explain to my own Latvian audience. Since your parties kind of operate like franchises, as far as I get it, that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, you, you kind of actually have to pay to put the donkey or the elephant on your ballot or something. Well, here <laughs> they're they're here they're more like very tightly knit interest groups. And each elections we have this one this one party that consists of various members from other parties that have imploded, who have come together, who are now returning, and, and who are doing this savior thing, which is yeah. also a very Soviet thing. Yeah, that, and well, and that's you know because yeah, we have an election coming up too, not for president obviously, but for um, midterms, and it's been getting very uh, heated in a lot of places. And this is one of those you will love, of course, moments. Okay. Technically, Russia is having an election right now. <laughs> No, I'm seriously, they are. <laughs> they they are. They call it uh, the Unified Voting Day, and uh, <laughs> this is the election where, like, in, in this to make it easier to cheat, it's now going on for three days because electronic votes are also allowed. It's always <laughs> super fun, and uh, they're now they're now they're they are now electing uh, the governors of various regions and municipal councils in various various cities. I just love. You know, I'm just going to call it Russian, but I just I just love that sort of like Russian euphemistic way of talking about politics, <laughs> unified election. <laughs> I, I mean, that like, isn't Putin's party called like the Unity Party or something like that? United Russia, yes. United Russia. Yeah. Like, it, it's almost like he's kind of like winking at observers from the outside, just being like, you see what I'm doing there, right? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's that's incredible. That's incredible. I, I, why do they even bother with the pretense? I just, I mean, I've heard that actually said on like other podcasts talking about Russia, where it's like, and that's the naivety of some of those liberals because there are some very insignificant elections, like 
see district councilor elections where you can pass through or something. Sure. The Russian liberals have like stuck on those and they are like always, you should go and vote. We should try everything so that you can say that you've done something. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter, man. It, it hasn't mattered since 2000 and yeah, yeah. second term, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Like or, that was when Medvedev won, right? And then like Putin got him to like like agree to do like a sort of like switch off like oh, i'll be prime minister and you'll be president and that kind of thing right honestly i kind of like uh that we're on this like happier note uh or more jovial note because i think I, at this point we can only be ruefully uh, amused at like the broader uh, picture of things you know what i mean i am i am i am done being nervous uh, right this is why i'm here man i I'm done being ultra stressed about everything. Uh, right now, I just want to have a peaceful conversation with you about stuff, and it's amazing. Yeah. And we can talk assassinations too. I don't really know what happened after with Dugan. Oh, they held this massive, massive, massive state funeral. Of course. Imagine in the, in the best traditions of the Nazi party, no less, like seriously <laughs> massive. And then there were speeches there, you think. But then Dugan's kind of just disappeared. I don't I didn't even know where he is right now. Right, because like last I heard of him was that funeral. And he gave... um. If I remember right, he gave a pretty, like, not a fire and brimstone speech, but a very um, heavy-handed speech of, of what Dasha was fighting for, that kind of thing. I mean, do you do you remember what he was saying during the funeral? No, because I couldn't sit through that. Look, dude, I listen to that <laughs> stuff every day. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but not this time. Yeah, I mean, and that is interesting that he's kind of like disappeared. I mean, possible that he is just in legit hiding. I mean, I don't I haven't been following his online activity, so I don't know. Maybe he's still putting stuff out. But uh, yeah, he has kind of dropped off the map, and that is very interesting. Uh, Denis Poshilian, by the way, uh, the leader of the Donetsk People's Republic. The last we've seen from that guy was when he was in an armored car driving somewhere very, very quickly. Just, just like trying to, and we don't know driving away from what, just he was just trying to get away. And, and making his uh, show, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I guess we can only speculate at that point what's going on. Okay, well, if you want to jump back to assassination uh, a little bit more, I was wondering- Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, my favorite. <laughs> well, I was wondering, because um, we were talking- about this. And you were saying that there is indeed a very storied history of assassination in your part of the world. And it, why was there so much, in your opinion, in Russian history specifically? Because from about 1740 until, you know, 1918, when Nicholas II was, uh, and his family were killed in that basement by the Bolsheviks, I think I want to say something like five czars were assassinated, the most significant one being Alexander II. In a way, it's about mentality. Sure. Remember that in Russia, a human life, a life is cheap. Sure. Okay? This happens when you completely normalize violence, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you think that, like, in this case, it's just sort of like it became, um, dark way to put it, but kind of a cultural value? Yeah, pretty much. Russia these days, if you look at what they're saying, what they're teaching kids at schools, and if you listen to my past episodes, then you probably heard that one. Sure. Russia is slowly turning into a bit of a death cult, really. Really? I, mean, they, 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 I have to go yeah, back and listen yeah. to that then, yeah. Think about it. They teach you that dying for your country and, and going on military is, is something awesome that all good men should do from age of 10. Their biggest celebration is what? End of World War II, which they celebrate by literally carrying on the streets this immortal march. They're kind of 
ancient relatives or just someone from the past just walking through the streets with their dead guys on them. They have some weird death obsession. They have tons of songs songs about them. Uh, death and violence has been pretty normalized there. Right. When it comes to something from- like the Second World War, though, I do kind of understand the memorialization when you your country has lost it was no, about no, no, twenty six no. million people. The, if you want to know everything there is to know about this whole situation, about how they celebrate the end of World War Two and how it's celebrated in other places, their slogan for the celebration is "Mojem Pavtarit," or "We can repeat this." Like we can do what we we can accomplish what we accomplished before is what they're saying. Yes, so we can go to Berlin again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um hey guys hey hey russians we we have documentation about what you did on your way there and dan carlin has talked about it it wasn't very nice i don't think people are going to think that it's a good thing now granted they don't care what anyone else thinks but this attitude that literally started from about 2008 because previously it was a memorial day uh this attitude is one of the reasons why we in the baltics are actively kind of removing soviet monuments because for us that we can repeat these things oh boy it hits home <sighs> oh yeah yeah, I mean, it's funny whenever I read and let I me mean, I think it's just because I follow, you know, your work so it doesn't surprise me, but it's just really funny when I read western um more neutral western observations about uh the Baltics. There was a, a another story in Newsweek I was looking at earlier that about your president, uh, oh. Levitt, is that his name? Yeah, Levitt. Yeah. Levitt. Yeah. yeah, 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 and he he gave a speech just uh yesterday saying, you know, being very firm, saying, you know, we can't hinder Ukrainian progress at this point, which I mean, I, I was just like, of course he would. He's, they're all in this, all you guys are on the same side right here. And and it's funny, like in the article, they were saying, and the Baltic nations, which have been a lot more strident in their skepticism of Russian motives. And I'm like, yeah, like, that's not news. Like It's just well, a, well, statement like, uh, of, it's a statement of fact. <laughs> it might surprise you, but I was born in the same country as Zelensky in the USSR. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, you you saw you you were born as the Soviet Union was dying. Yeah, uh, nineteen eighty nine. I managed to live whole two years through it, but I still have my thingies. But yeah, there's a thing. Yeah. We used to be the same country. We used to be oppressed the same way. I can go to Moldova and there are people whom I can talk to and they know this stuff. It's just kind of weird. It really was a huge country that did fall apart after all. It's funny because I think in the West, especially, a lot of people have trouble understanding. That just because the Soviet Union fell doesn't mean that it like became a stable democracy, especially, but or just a stable country. I, I I'm really curious what the average American who is paying attention to what's going on, but not like fervently or doesn't understand the history, like what they think happened between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the rise of Putin. Like, I'm, I'm very curious what the average person thinks. I don't think it's connected to reality. If you're listening to this show, please do send in your responses to Alex. I yes. will not say, I will not spoil anything. I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to know like what they think. Yeah, so please do send me an email, historyimpossible at gmail.com. Please tell me what, what you think. Um, but I think also if they're listening, they probably are at least more aware than the average person. Okay, how about this? If any of you listening know anybody who's just a sort of average person, like in your family or friends who just has a less than ideal knowledge of- Oh, no. In this episode, Alexander states loudly, hey, guys, does anyone anyone of you know any normal people? (laughs) That's another good point. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, and I don't blame someone who doesn't like who didn't live or experience, you know, like, for example, what you experience or anybody that you know who was in a former Soviet country experience. But 
it just seems to me that it would do people a lot of good to have a sense of perspective on like what happens when a, a, a like an empire falls apart and how it's almost inevitable that a criminal element is going to take over. For a while, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's happened so many other times with smaller countries, but... Criminal element also takes over after very kind of failed wars when right. there are people who are traumatized, can't get jobs, and but they really, really know how to use a gun well. Yeah, you might as well make use of it if you have one, yeah. I mean, I guess it's cynical, but it's just sort of like, that's what Russia's in for. For the next, like, however many decades, it sounds like, right? Uh, yes. Our, our conversation should be named the Cynical Sunday Talks, you know. So. <laughs> cynical Sunday Talk. Um, well, I think I'm going to wrap this up because I want to let you get some sleep. Sure, sure. Um, is there no, anything else you wanted to highlight? What's important now these days? Right now, uh, I think it's important to, if someone in the West that's trying to comment on this war, who's not me or Alexander, because you know how we do these things. If someone is going to give you a nice little list of bullet points of exactly what's going to happen, no, I, I highly <laughs> doubt this is possible. Right now, pr any predictions made, 99% fail. There's Unless they know how to be a fly, like transform into a fly and land on Putin's wall. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting a lot of questions these days. Obviously, a lot of people ask me a lot of questions. And I've reached the point where I have to honestly state, sorry, no idea. Because honestly, <laughs> no idea. And that's okay. You don't have to know at all times. I mean, people, when they expect to, that's a compliment. That is an amazing compliment for people to be asking you, you know, hey, Chris Chops, tell me what's happening. I need to know. But people need to also understand who are listening to this that most of the time we don't know anything. And these are just educated guesses we make. Like a lot of it is informed by bias and all that. But, you know, we have to just get more information sometimes. And, you know, even with history, not never mind current events, but even with history, sometimes we don't know everything because there just isn't enough information out there or we didn't have access to some of it so yeah basically i'm saying give us a break guys <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're humans too and we're sometimes overworked as well so yeah and operating on power naps oh, <laughs> so happens yeah on that note i'm gonna let you get to more than a power nap my friend uh thank you so much for sitting down uh this episode will be on both our feeds and uh yeah please send me those emails if you know any normal people i'll be surprised but please do Happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.